1929, a book titled Ex-Wife was published anonymously. It depicted a couple, Peter and Patricia, who break up over a sexual double standard. He's allowed to have affairs. She isn't. The book is vivid in its prose and gripping in its depictions of casual sex, drinking, abortions, violence, and abuse, all in 1920s New York. In it, Patricia's friend and post-divorce roommate Lucia notes, An ex-wife is a woman with a crick in the neck from looking back over her shoulder at her matrimony. Later, Patricia bitterly adds, An ex-wife is a young woman for whom the eternity promised in the marriage ceremony is reduced to three years, or five, or eight. The book was written by Ursula Parrott, a woman who lived a lot of what she wrote about and so much more. The book was later adapted into the film The Divorcee, for which Norma Shearer won an Oscar. Welcome to This American Ex-Wife. I'm Liz Lenz. you all of this because I read Ex-Wife and a biography of Ursula Parrott by Marcia Gordon while I was writing my own book. Reading Ex-Wife made me furious, not just because it's so beautiful and smart and heartbreaking, but because I'd never heard of it before, nor the author. The book made me understand how what we view as modern problems are simply the problems of humanity and life. That as long as people have been falling in love, they have been breaking up. In her biography of Parrot, Marsha Gordon, a professor of film studies at North Carolina State University, describes a world where women were experiencing new liberations, yet still hampered by the same old patriarchy. A world that still feels depressingly familiar. Here to talk about the ex-wife who ex-wiped us all, is Marsha Gordon. Let's get to the show. Marsha, thank you so much for joining us. Liz, I'm so glad to be here. This is a treat. I'm excited to talk to you of all people about this. Yes, um, I am also a messy ex-wife who writes about it, so I felt a lot of affinity <laughs> with Ursula Parrott, although I haven't broken a soldier out of his barracks and gone to trial for it yet. Yet. Yeah, don't forget the yet. There is still plenty of time. Um, so I know this is like a big question, but I a lot of people like me are coming to Parrot's life having no idea who she is. So can you give us just a couple sentences of who was this woman? This is a woman who we all should know. She should be as known to us as F. Scott Fitzgerald is, but she disappeared from history. And the kind of quick down and dirty on her is that she was from Boston, born in 1899, um, raised by a Dorchester doctor, um, went to Boston Latin Girls School. So she was part of this generation of young women who could get a really good education. Like this is the first time in American history, right, where women's education is at the fore. And she had progressive parents who had to commit to sending her to college if she wanted to. That was a condition for going to Boston Latin Girls School. And she did. She went to Radcliffe College where she earned a degree in English. And then she worked as a journalist. And then she got married, had a kid, moved to Greenwich Village, 
And then, as you can imagine, she got divorced. And lo and behold, she wrote this uh, best-selling, kind of a thinly-veiled tell-all in 1929 um, called Ex-Wife. And that's what launched her literary career. And she spent a career writing uh, 20 books and over 100 pieces of um, short fiction or serialized novels and nonfiction. And um, she spent time in Hollywood. She There were 10 films made of her work. So she was a very prominent person. And certainly if you had been alive in the 1930s and someone made a reference to Ursula Parrott, I think you would have known who she was at the time. It's just that she has disappeared since then. When I was reading her novel, Ex-Wife, um, I was surprised. So I've read a lot of Edith Wharton. I've read a lot of Henry James. I have read a lot of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, not because I'm better than anybody, because I was an English major and I'm also insufferable, but um, <laughs> just the worst. You were assigned these things though. You were assigned these things in your classes. That's why you yes, read them. Yes. And, and when I read Ex-Wife, not only was I just surprised at how accessible the prose was because yeah. um god bless henry james it is not accessible and um wharton's a little sometimes although custom of the country is fire yeah like yeah. that book Agree. is just a hot mess i love <laughs> it although anyway we're not talking about wharton but um but when i read um when I read Ex-Wife, I was just so surprised at how vivid and how real these characters are. Because often reading Wharton, I'm like, leave, you know, go to a party, like go out of your stuffy old houses. I get so frustrated with these characters. And yet I think Parrot's characters just feel so real, still even so contemporary. How was her writing received at the time? Oh, gosh, this is like... How many hours do we have to have this conversation? It's, this is a complicated, interesting question. First off, um, I agree, obviously, I spent all this time writing about her, that she was an extraordinarily good writer. She was witty. She was so modern. I mean, you probably noticed in Ex-Wife, there's that chapter where she's using musical bars from a Gershwin song on the page. I mean, she's capturing the musicality of the jazz age. She's like Nora Ephron, you know, yes, like reading yes. this was like reading Heartburn with yes. like the recipes, but she used music. I mean, there's just, it's so urgent and real and contemporary. Yeah, and she captures the voice and the feeling and the fashion and the sentiment and the cocktails and the speakeasies. I mean, all of that essence of New York City in such a powerful, beautiful way. And this is one of the great novels of New York City. You know, that very few people have read, which, by the way, you can read this novel now, right? Thanks to McNally Editions, who has republished it. It came out the week after my book came out. I had nothing to do with it. It was honestly the universe, like, making amends for all the injustices done to Ursula Parrott over the years. But um, in terms of how her writing was received at the time, um, this was a runaway bestseller. Sold over 100,000 copies in the first year, went through a bunch of editions. Her name got attached to it very quickly. That was a publishing stunt to call it anonymous because, of course, why would you have to have an anonymous book? It's because it's got some, you know, risque content and it worked. It built a lot of buzz around the book. And then, of course, it gets made into a movie in 1930, as you mentioned, The Divorcee with Norma Shearer. Um, but in terms of how it was received, um, her books, like F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, The Great Gatsby, when it came out, were uh, met with mixed kind of critical reception. Um, I, I, 
needless to say, the male critical establishment was not entirely praiseworthy from my experience of reading reviews. Like the New York Times reviewer, um, on the one hand, acknowledged that Parrot had really put a label to a to a to a kind of woman um, who was new in America, like the ex-wife as a category. Um, she didn't invent that term, but she made people realize, oh yes, there are ex-wives. We are in the midst of many ex-wives. They're everywhere. This is a new kind of identity. And so he said like, yeah, so she captures this zeitgeist, but he's like you know, dismissing it as a kind of slight, you know, a novel by a woman for women. And he he makes a point to say, I left the book like on the couch and my wife and two of her friends picked it up and immediately they started turning the pages, right? That was his way of saying like, this book is garbage, right? Like, and she didn't get taken. That first novel, um, you know, was not loved by the critical establishment, but it was reviewed everywhere. And it was like a water cooler book, right? Everyone was talking about it. There were articles about her and so, so on and so forth. But having said that, some of her books, I mean, again, she published 20 in total, um, were greatly praised. I always like to counter um, the story of ex-wife with her 1933 novel, The Tumult and the Shouting, which is about multiple generations of an Irish-American family. So like ex-wife, it's based on her life, but this is a, you know, a cleaner version of that. And it's really a novel about the way times and opportunities change, about the march of progress. This was warmly received. The New York Times described it as, quote, so far beyond anything which Miss Parrott had previously written that the reviewer felt justified in demanding something more ambitious in the future. I mean, he felt like this novel was putting her on the literary map. And this was something she really wanted. She wanted to write the great American novel. She wanted to be recognized as a great American novelist. And so um, so she had a mixed critical reception, but she got pigeonholed, as did many you know, women writing in her generation who were not just writing for the elite literary magazines, but were publishing in Ladies' Home Journal and Red Book and Cosmopolitan as a writer of women's romantic fiction, even though she is not a romance writer in any way, shape, or form. Well, and this is something Betty Friedan pointed out, which, again, when I read The Feminine Mystique, which I hadn't been made to read in all of my readings, when I, when I sat down to finally read it at the age of 37, I was so angry because Betty, for so many reasons, because I was like, wait, why are we still here? Um... Although her long chapter about Freud aside, we can just ignore that one. But, you know, she describes the world that Parrot lived in where, like, in the 1920s, there were so many women writing and writing stories, not just where, you know, they get married and live happily ever, but writing stories about women being single and, uh, and like, you know, I don't know, flying, becoming pilots and living lives of adventure. And and it pre-code Hollywood had tons of female script writers. I mean, they they had lots of Greta Gerwigs. Um and and then all of a sudden things changed. And that and that whole reality, that whole like there was this world where women were like suddenly given so many options and choices and flapper dresses and the vote, and then gone just gone. Well, what I think is really interesting, I want to say a couple of things. One is that 
parents' stories are so often about successful career women, um, women who are ambitious. And parents' women do not fail if they are on a career track. In their professional worlds, they always fail in their personal lives. And it's largely because the men that they are with or want to be with cannot accommodate the idea of a woman who is more successful than them. So she completely eviscerates this idea of kind of male insecurity about professional identity, about having to be the breadwinner, which is the name of one of my favorite parrot stories from 1933. Um, so she, she loves telling this story. And I, when I read um, Betty Friedan thinking about parrot, I was so surprised to see parrot, you know, writing such strong, successful women that were like so counter to that, uh, that war and post-war era world that Friedan was looking at. The second thing I wanted to say is that Parrot, when she started writing for Hollywood and was doing all of these interviews, said like, people need to stop making movies where the ending is a marriage, where the ending is a wedding. What America needs is movies about what happens the next day and the next week and the next month, because that's what's interesting, is all of the difficulties of being in a modern marriage in an age where all of the old rules about dependency um, and submissiveness have been kind of thrown out the window and people don't people haven't cracked the nut. I still feel like they haven't, yeah. you know? Oh, it's it's what makes her writing, I think, so unbelievably timely. Like when you read Ex-Wife, which I hope everyone will do, my goal in life is that everyone should read Ex-Wife. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I, it's hard not to go, oh yeah, this could be like an episode of Sex in the City. This could be like something that's happening right now and you, you know, change the fashions and... Uh, Prohibition cocktails are back in style, so you can leave those. But, you know, it's got that sense. I mean, she deals with abortion. She deals with yes. rape. She's dealing with these real issues confronting women that were very much at the margins of pop culture conversation in such a direct way. She's so yes. direct. Yeah, she doesn't pretend. She's like, I need to get an abortion. And then she asks a doctor for an abortion, and then he helps her find someone who will give one and then he hits on her. Yeah. And yeah, it's on just the way. on the way. And it's so real. Um, and, and I think what's also really powerful and the New York times also pointed this out as I was rereading some coverage and I was like, right. The New York times and I are on the same page on this one, but the depictions of female friendships um, are so powerful. Her roommate Lucia is just this, it, it's it's this incredible her um not to give away too much of the story uh and people definitely need to read the book but patricia falls in love with this man she's kind of always been in love with him he has this wife who's been disfigured and that relationship is a powerful one like the one between patricia and dorothy is is so incredibly beautiful and moving, you know, again, not to bring Wharton into the conversation, but once a, a very powerful literary figure told me that Wharton was the divorce author of our time. And so I did, I went and reread all the Wharton books and I was like, why does Wharton hate her women characters so much? And then I read that Hermione Lee biography and I was like, oh, well, <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> now I understand. But like, 
but I think it's these female friendships that arise of women just really struggling. They're so ambitious. And yet the more ambitious they are, the more their lives fall apart. And like, yeah. And yeah. And I mean, I think for Parrot, she was exercising her own experiences and her own demons throughout her writing. And part of that was trying to understand like what, what it meant to be someone, I mean, keep in mind, her book came out in 1929. She got her first big paycheck in October of 1929. The depression smacks America, you know, at the end of the month as her novel is being serialized in a New York newspaper. It's like stock market crashes on the front page and ex-wife gets thrown out in storm at the bottom of the front page. So she is coming into all this money at a time when everyone for the next decade is suffering except those rare few, and she is among them, who manages to kind of strike gold in a very rarefied sphere, right, of a best-selling author, um, Hollywood screenwriter, getting money for her literary um, assets um, to be adapted. And so she's trying to figure out, like, as a woman, a divorcee, a single woman, as it turns out, marries and divorces four times, um, has multiple other engagements. Um, she's trying to figure out how to have a successful relationship herself. And so a lot of what she's playing out in these stories about failed relationships, because I think of all of her stories, there's maybe three or four that have successful relationships. And that's very telling about the kind of personal demons she was struggling with. And I also, I think it's important to say, she was also a single mother. So I mentioned she had a child. Her husband did not raise that child. She raised that child. And she raised that child with the help of initially her father until he passed. And then she had a never married sister, Lucy, who helped her care for her um, son. And she also, you know, as an affluent Northeastern woman um, would do, sent him to boarding schools. And, um, so, so she's also like got a kid who, and she's not hiding this kid in interviews. She's talking about her son and how they like to go to history museums and how he loves dinosaurs. And so she's performing this really radical identity, that of a woman who's raising a child on her own. When she's getting, entering into these other marriages, she's not looking for a father. As a matter of fact, she has conflict over like, the men who want to try to raise her son because that's her son. She's fine doing that on her own. She has all the money she needs. She doesn't need that. But she can't quite figure out how to how to get that uh, kind of the partnership. We would think of it as partnership today. Like that didn't exist. It still doesn't, Marsha. <laughs> I, I think part of what was killing me when I was reading the biography and I was like, I struggle with this. Like every woman, when I was researching for my book, every woman I talked to struggles with this. The, the poet Maggie Smith just came out with a beautiful book, You Can Make This Place Beautiful, where she basically says, the more successful I got in, in my professional life, the worse my marriage got, right? Like this is... These are unresolved issues. That's yes. the point. She's yes. raising... But you know what I think of? Think about this, Liz. Imagine like when you were going through your divorce, if you like wrote a novel that you knew everyone would know that it was about your life and experiences and and it's a hundred years ago. Like, I mean, imagine being like, 
like even now it's hard to talk about these things, right? Like you're brave to be like, I'm here, I'm talking about these things. But imagine what that was like. And every Walter Winchell, the most listened to, you know, gossip columnist in America, she's on his radio show talking about her divorce. And like, she becomes a, 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 to me, a really pioneering, brave spokeswoman for the modern woman, for the single mother, for the divorcee. And she's doing this in such an early time that I, I can't imagine what the discomfort that she felt. And I, to me, the bravery. She's not perfect, right? She was flawed. She made mistakes all the time. She didn't have the answers to anything, but she was out there saying, we have to talk about these things because that's the reality. It's not just me. It's you know, hundreds of thousands. It's millions of other women are experiencing this. And we've got to talk about this. And I and she's right, you know, and she had to be this model of a type of womanhood that wasn't being modeled anywhere else. And even, I mean, I think what struck me when I watched The Divorcee is even in Hollywood, even in the movies, things changed. Like, so if The Divorcee, if people listening haven't seen it, please go watch it. Um, I found it on Amazon Prime, um, but I know Amazon's evil for some people. There's lots of places you can find it. It's incredible. The ending is completely, it, I, it, it just has this happy ending. It has the couple getting back together, which is very different than the book. Um, and, and I was just like, even, even in Hollywood, the place where she was writing and modeling this idea of womanhood, even they wouldn't let that be on the screen? Well, there's a couple factors. One is the the production code administration, which was Hollywood's in-house censorship in this time period where they're trying to like stop the federal government from intervening and stop the Catholic Legion of Decency from boycotting all of their films. And so they're trying to make more quote-unquote moral pictures. And after 1934, this film would have been cleaned up even more. But this comes out in 1930. Um, it is being scrutinized. At first, they had a hard time even making this film. The reason it's called The Divorcee is that they couldn't call it Ex-Wife. I mean, they were told, you can't make a movie called Ex-Wife. That's too crass. So The Divorcee is the cleaned up version of that. And that's the more mannered version, right? But then, you know, of course, all of the nitty gritty, all of the best stuff in the book, right? The most important stuff in the book that's really about how hard it is to be a woman navigating a man's world, that's gone, right? That's gone in in the film. Now, the film is wonderful in its own way. I'm a big admirer of this film. But yeah, the ending, the chance at redemption, right? At the end with the reconciliation and the kiss on New Year's Eve. Uh, I mean, it's such a... Uh, uh, a kind of simplistic way to end, but that's also the stereotypical Hollywood way to end, right? And she, um, you know, Parrot, Parrot understood. I mean, she made a few statements that I found about like, oh, I realize Hollywood has to change my stories, that they can't be made the way they are, but I'm really committed to trying to create complex female characters in particular and to try to represent women who are worldwise and not naive and not simpering. I mean, she really wanted strong female characters um, to to be to represent her, um, basically, to movie going audiences. Yeah, she wanted to put on screen the women who she wished. She had seen. Yes, exactly. And she really saw her time in Hollywood. She saw that as an opportunity to really broaden the conversation because think about what movie audiences were like. I mean, in the Depression, I mean, 
this is one of the major uh, pursuits, affordable, you know, uh, extracurricular activities. People went to the movies multiple times a week. Um, and so you could really get people thinking and talking about something by making a movie about it. And so she saw this as a platform, as a way to get this conversation about modern women uh, in front of a lot of people and a lot of conversations at the dinner table or at the, you know, at the bar after the movie. I might have a very interesting wedding dress story. Uh, after the divorce, um, one of the things I had to do was go to the storage unit and get all the stuff and sort through it all. The wedding dress was in with a bunch of other stuff. I pulled out the box that had the wedding dress and it had been eaten by mice. <laughs> like there were holes all over it. There were mice droppings in the box. And the funny thing was that there was no other damage to anything else in the storage unit from mice, just the wedding dress. <laughs> and I thought, this is awesome. This is perfect. This is exactly how I feel about our marriage. It's gone. And the mice support me. <laughs> Everybody else judges me uh, for choosing to divorce, but the mice, they've got me. talking about like imagine writing a very popular novel about your divorce and everybody yeah. knew who your ex-husband was the first thing I thought of was Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein yeah. where it's yeah. like she yeah. and, and then you know she and everybody knew and she wrote yeah. The Heartburn and it was this big success and and everybody knew she was talking about Carl Bernstein which to me is still so wild because again, when I was researching for this book, I would have a lot of women who would come up to me and tell me their stories and they'd be like, but you can't put that in your book because I don't want to get sued. I don't want to have a problem. I had a woman who, who runs a, uh, a group for single mothers uh, who are like trying to like invest you know, and she's like, no, nobody likes, don't talk, don't whine about your divorce. Don't, nobody likes a negative woman. You just got to move forward. And I was like, we still cannot look in the rear view mirror and assess what marriage actually is in America. Yeah. It's so interesting too, because keep in mind that, I mean, parent came from a, a Boston Irish Catholic family. Like this is like legitimate you know, transgression. And she actually has a number of stories that have a Irish Catholic uh, family doctor character. That's obviously her father. And, and those are often about the disappointment and the kind of sadness that this character feels about his wayward daughter who's, you know, gets married multiple times and has a child. And um, like, so just... I. That, that she could turn uh, stuff that, uh, in certainly in the culture she grew up in, should have been shameful, and sh that she turns that instead into an opportunity for exploration and growth. I mean, I you know, I've read um, you know she uh, her papers aren't collected anywhere, but she, her correspondence survives um, in two. Um, um, archives that um, correspondence she wrote to men. So their archives have been preserved. And so one of those was her, um, her lover, Hugh O'Connor, who um, uh, was one of the loves of her life. And 
they would write these letters back and forth. I, you know, he, I don't have any of his. I only have hers to him because he kept them. And um, they would puzzle through, like, why are men this way? Why are women this way? Why is it that, you know, men are inclined to wander and to want to adventure? And why is it that women, you know, really want this ideal of stability and monogamy? I mean, they were... They were having these conversations as pen pals when he was traveling as a reporter that I'm always just like stunned that they were really trying to puzzle through this. And she was often offering her philosophy like about the inequities and having to like put your own moral code to the side in order to try to be modern in the way that men wanted you to be. And, you know, this is such a time of, like, just everything's being upended from the Victorian age into this kind of modern, permissive world, especially, you know, she's in New York City, right? Like, she's not in the Midwest. She's not in the South. I mean, she's in the hotbed of, of all of this experimentation and change. And, and I do think she's really trying to understand it all, right? Like, to make sense of life. And, and you know, she was never nostalgic, but she acknowledged that, like, wow, her grandmother's generation, it was, like, a lot easier, right? Might have been boring, might have, you know, like, had some negatives. But, um, you know, she knew her husband wasn't going to divorce her. I mean, if he was going to cheat on her, she probably wouldn't know about it, but he would always come back. She would never have to worry about anything, you know, like, supporting herself or raising her children on her own. And that that, that was just like the the structures of everything had been so changed by all these things that like, of course it's good that women can have educations and women can work, but there's consequences for that. And maybe we should think about those. Like if men feel like I can walk away from you, you're fine on your own. Like, what does that mean for the future of this institution that we've built our whole civilization on? Right. Oh, we've told women, especially, this is what you should want. This is what you should have. And we've created a world where stability outside for a woman, like stability outside of marriage is so much harder. I mean, even still, even today, single women are paid less. They pay more in taxes. Um, I think they pay more in health insurance just because we have a structural society set up to benefit in every single possible financial way, couples, heterosexual couples, let's be very specific. Um, And so even still, right? And so it's like, yes, you're suddenly liberated. Now go live in this world that like demeans you, that uses you up, that pays you less, and that, you know, views your groundbreaking novel as middle brow and then forgets about you later. And you know, something that you wrote about her is, and this is, you know, I didn't, I didn't love that she said this, but I understand it because I hear this from women all the time where she blamed feminists. She was yeah, like, look at yeah. what you did. You And actually Nora Ephron writes this a little bit in Heartburn. I think she, Nora Ephron says like, you know, all these women like left their marriages and then they entered a world where the only benefit they got was like the Dutch treat, you know, where yes. you got to split. Yep. And so yep. like, but this is what, I mean, this is what Ursula says. She's like, yeah, you liberated us and the world sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was, she was so interesting because on the one hand, she was a feminist. I mean, the way she talks about women in the workplace and structural inequalities, sexual harassment. I mean, she talks about all these things in her correspondence and in her stories. Um, 
but she is absolutely not a fan of feminism when she names it as such. And part of it is she was really um, pissed that like, like the, that nobody had thought about what happens after this stuff. I mean, that was her thing. It's like, and there was this kind of burnout that happened in the 1920s, this kind of backlash against feminism, right? There's always backlashes, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Like we we keep, we get, it's like Susan a couple Faludi steps Susan enters the chat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right, I mean, we get progress on some things and then we go back to ground zero on the next thing and you know just think about what's happened with um with abortion in the very recent times and the way that parrot was talking about it at this illegal time where it was incredibly easy to access in new york city but you know at the i mean you risked your life if you you know had an abortion which was as the same level of illegality as birth control right so like you choose your poison how do you want to get arrested how do you want to die you know like what are the risks you're willing to take and she saw all of this as like you know once that idea of chastity and women's purity in one marriage was kind of thrown out the window and there was all this pressure to be modern there were consequences for those things and you know Obviously, in the case of abortion, the consequences are for women, right? I mean, it was her um, health and life that she had to risk if she became pregnant and did not want to have a child. And so, yeah. And she had to raise the child, right? Like, she also was a single mother. Also, um, I, I came to reading your book right after I turned in final edits on mine and rating X wife after and and I was so mad because I was just like where was this where was this where was she can you tell me about how you found Ursula and what that process was like yeah so um yeah so she yeah this is such an interesting question to me because this is also a question of like uh, why do we do what we do? Like I decided to dedicate myself many years to researching and writing a book about a woman no one had ever heard of and none of her books were in print, right? Like this is folly, right? This is what crazy people do, right? Dedicate themselves to these like causes of of, uh, of futility in some ways because uh, yeah, it's just not, this is not a commercially sensible thing to do, but I felt really driven, a kind of federal responsibility. And I'll tell you why. So um, I encountered her because I was reading an F. Scott Fitzgerald never produced screenplay called Infidelity. And guess who wrote Infidelity? Ursula Parrott did. It was published in Cosmopolitan and F. Scott Fitzgerald was hired by MGM in 1938 to turn Ursula Parrott's story into a movie. And I was like, okay, hmm. That's weird. Who's Ursula Parrott? Never heard of her. And I started looking into her. I bought a used copy of Ex-Wife on eBay, which was the only way I could find it. And I thought, wow, this novel is amazing. Why have I read Great Gatsby so many times and I've never heard of this novel? But Fitzgerald was hired to adapt, you know, one of her stories. And then I started digging and I was like, okay, actually... Fun fact here, Ex-Wife sold like four times as many copies as The Great Gatsby did. Fitzgerald was completely forgotten 
by the 1940s, except by a handful of people. Oh, and by the way, these were male critics of the highest order, people like Lionel Trilling and Malcolm Cowley, um, who were willing to fight for him and to say, like, he should be republished. We're going to write critical praise about this author. And they resuscitated him. They were the start of this wave of bringing F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby in particular back into American culture. Well, Ursula Parrott had nobody to do that in the 1930s or the 1940s or the 1950s or the 1960s or the 1970s. Now, interestingly enough, Ex-Wife was republished once before in 1989. Francine Prose wrote an introduction. It was published. Um, and I'm fascinated by the fact that it didn't get traction when it was republished in the 1980s. So when I came across this, uh, you know, came across Parrot and started learning about her and was so interested in her, I thought, oh my God, if I don't write this book, who is going to write a biography of this woman? Nobody will ever know who she is. Like I, if it's, if it's, you know, the one thing I do that helps bring her back into the conversation, I'm going to take the time to do it and hope that I can be part of moving the dial on her because I do think ex-wife should be read and taught in any class on American literature of the 20th century, certainly in any class on women's literature. Um, I just think it's also just a great book to read. You can read it on a beach. You can read it in a bar. You can read it in a coffee shop. This is not like, this is a very accessible and yet like beautifully written, elegant, and timely story. But I think the book changes conversations because you cannot, because we like to pretend that things did not happen in the past that did happen in the past. So you can read, and I'm so sorry to pick on Edith Wharton. I really like her. Um, but like you can read Edith Wharton and pretend people didn't get abortions in the past. You can read Edith Wharton and pretend that being an ex-wife would ruin your life. And so I would rather die than divorce, you know. Um, uh, you know, you can read these books and pretend like rape didn't. Well, maybe not Wharton, but like, you know, you can read these books and pretend like these pretend a world that didn't exist away or hide it. Um, e e even F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, who also wrote with like passion and immediacy like these. But when you read Parrot, you cannot pretend. You cannot pretend women were out there being raped or going on bad dates with mansplainers. And, and it changes the conversation, I think, to say, why are we still here? And, you know, and why are we pretending? And, and so I think that's what makes, to me, that that's what makes Parrot so much harder to read and to be in conversation with all the books we've decided uh, represent, you know, 1920s America, because I think what she reveals is America that we don't want to deal with. Like, we don't want to deal with back alley abortions. We want to pretend like this isn't part of the narrative. You know, we don't want to deal with alcoholism. <laughs> like, we don't want to deal with sexual violence. And so I think when you when you put Parrot next to Wharton or next to Henry James, what you're doing is you're revealing, you're like kicking over the logs of those books and seeing all the nasty underside that we just don't want to deal with. I think that's such a good point. And, I, you know, I want to add something interesting to that, that, that Parrot does in Ex-Wife, which I'm sure you noticed 
one of my favorite stylistic things she does in the novel is that anytime something emotional comes up for the protagonist, who's, this is basically her story, right? She's narrating it. Um, anything emotional, she puts in parentheses. So like when she goes to the abortion, she's being very flippant and casual, but her feelings, her fear that she's going to die, you know, her fear that she's going to, you know, be devastated every time she sees like a baby on the street, like those are in parentheses because it's about like not wanting to come off as anything other than this modern, progressive, strong woman. And think about how we do that now, right? Like, we're fine, we're fine, it's okay. Like, we just go about our lives. Like, the things that we continue to put in parentheses, right, that either we don't talk about or we're afraid to talk about or we, you know, maybe only talk about to one person um, or just, like, have this dialogue in our head. I think that's a really powerful part of this like kind of revealing that dark side of American life. And, you know, it's funny because some of the reviews of Ex-Wife when it came out, you know, make it seem like this like celebration of hedonism. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the most like cautionary tale, like warning, warning, the world is really wicked and hard. Like girls be careful out there. That's what I get when I read this book. And the fact that people you kind of misunderstood it as something that was like shallow and, you know, about like a, this like tawdry woman who just like throws everything, you know, throws her marriage away. And it's just, it's completely like, it's, it's not seeing what's actually there. And maybe that's part of why she was also so easy to dismiss, right? Because if the critics aren't willing to see the work for what it is, if they are like, you know, kind of delusional in their approach because they have created this category, oh, this is a woman writer writing this kind of book, then you never have a chance, right, at being taken seriously. And it's why I think it's a very interesting thing to consider now as people start hopefully rereading her, like how can we think about her differently? Well, I think, you know, for so long, women's issues and still, still get sidelined and pigeonholed, right? Where like the Washington Post is like, well, the special women's issue, you know, we'll do, you know, the Lily and like, we'll have women's specific magazines and like, and, and, you know, whenever I write about abortion, I'll always get male commenters well-meaning being like, well, you women should figure out your women's issue. And it's just like, this is a human. It, and, you know, meanwhile, we all have to grapple with the problem of male loneliness or whatever. Like this is, and so it's so much easier to dismiss women's issues, women's lives, memory hold them. And I think that there's like an intentionality to that too. I, you know, I'm not saying like, you know, Lionel Trilling was like intentionally, I'm going to forget Ursula Parrott because like screw all those women, you know. Uh, but there is an intentionality, I think, to to forgetting the women of the past who have done the work that I'm still trying to do because then it forces us to always be in this loop where we're always fighting for the things we were fighting for in the twenties all over again. I mean, again, I'm just being Susan Faludi, but more flippant, but like, you know, 
Well, I think it, I mean, there's no doubt that it's selective elevation though, right? Like when you are, you know, making a decision about who is going to be the great writer, who are you going to elevate to the pantheon of author of the great American novel? What is that novel going to be? And if you, if the only voices in the room are male voices and the only stories they're elevating are the stories like The Great Gatsby that are completely male stories from a male perspective. I mean, what do we get of Daisy's life? What do we get? I mean, you know, they're, they're cardboard. They're not there. So like that, there is, that is at work. And I think it's funny because it seems like such a 70s project in some ways to be like, oh yeah, it's time to bring in, you know, the forgotten women. But I think this is a reminder that that project is not done yet. That work is not done yet. And there are so many, this is, I've told one story, how many others are out there that are equally like fabulous, high profile, well-known, articulate, talented, that are just like, they've just fallen through the cracks. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And, and well, I think like kicked into a crack is <laughs> More like I like that, yeah, or I like stomped, that. you know, into it. Yeah. Uh, my metaphors are awful. Um, no, I like but, it. I like it. But yeah, because you're right. Like you know, which 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 women are told this is who you ought to be, and this is what you can write, and then which women it's like, okay, great, so glad you were a bestseller, but now we're gonna forget you. And I think you know, I I wonder too, like in a hundred years, how are like women going to look back at sex in the city, which I think might get memory hold, right? Uh, which I think is actually really powerful and I love it. And Candace Bushnell is just, she's just out there saying the things. I, any interview with her, I will read uh, because she will say something completely wild, uh, but true. Uh, but uh, you, know, I just, I it makes me wonder what what's happening now that everybody's just going to decide to forget. Yeah, well, but let me say something else, which is that I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, one of the reasons um, that that parrots write, I mean, she was very prolific until she wasn't. And so she struggled. You made an allusion to alcohol, like so many writers of the jazz age, like so many denizens of New York City. Um, she struggled with drinking very seriously on and off throughout her life. She tried to quit. Then she went back to it for comfort. Then she drank too much and made a bad decision. And then she drank too much, forget the bad decision. And so she, this was something she really struggled with. And I think it really contributed to her periods where she struggled with writing. And it got harder and harder for her, I think, to kind of manage those cycles of, you know, like missing writing deadlines and then feeling bad about it and then staying up for three days and trying to finish a story. And so, I mean, she was also self-destructive in many ways. And I don't, you know, want to uh, take all culpability away from her. She was definitely an agent of her own chaos at various points in her life. I mean, she was a pretty wild woman who just kind of followed her impulses and followed her desires. And part of that was a feeling that like, look, men do this all the time. Like I'm just behaving in the way I'm supposed to be behaving as a modern woman. And so um, I, I do think though, that, you know, again, you could put her alongside, I keep coming back to Fitzgerald, you keep coming back to Wharton. Um, but, you know, think about the, the kind of abusive alcohol mismanagement of finances that you get in Fitzgerald life. And it gets acknowledged as this tragic, but I think it also gets kind of treated as this romantic thing, like, oh, the 
the writer who drank too much and spent too much and Hemingway. 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 I mean, yeah, yeah, we love a man. We love to tell stories of a man who, you know, write and then go drink his little mojitos and then womanize. Like he's a he's a romantic figure, but oh my god, a single mother does that. Even now, 2023. Oh my God. Okay, let's get personal. I went on a date one time where a guy was like, well, "You you write a lot about drinking," and I'm like, "I have a newsletter where I put like drink of the week in it." I what? And he's like, "Do you think that's good for like your children to see?" And I was like, "I wow! Like you can't even respond to that." But it's just yes, it's not. Yes, but she was self-destructive. Tell us, tell us about her soldier as as a kind of final story to make people really want to read the biography. Okay, yeah, this is a whole chapter called yes. Saving Saving Private Brian. Um, <laughs> so she, okay, so Parrot, uh, she is married to her fourth and final husband, uh, and uh, who was a colonel. And this is World War Two. Okay, so a lot of attention to the military at this time, and. She hooks up with this private who had been a guitar player, like with Benny Goodman and a bunch of other things, who was like in his 20s. She was in her 40s at the time, as every single article pointed out, although they got her age wrong because she lied about her age. So actually, she Good was more than she was. Yeah, but everyone did it. Everyone does it. Anyhow, um, so... She hooks up with him, and long story short, he gets arrested for selling a marijuana in <laughs> New York. And this is a serious time in the history of marijuana because, um, you know, the, there's new legislation. It becomes a federal crime. Um, there's a trying to clean up America. You don't want to tarnish the military reputation at a time of war. Anyhow, there's a big, long, complicated thing. Long story short... He is in a military stockade, a minimum security, awaiting his trial in Miami. And Parrot gets to visit him and might have gotten carried away one day and driven him off campus without permission. <laughs> and then proceeded to have a night on the town with him at a bar and a hotel and... Anyhow, I, I won't tell how it ends entirely, but I will say they turned themselves in and there was a very high profile, very sensational trial that ensued. And um, I will say there was a guilty verdict and an innocent verdict. And you have to read the book to find out who was guilty and who was innocent. She's just such, she's so fun and fascinating. <laughs> and I love her so much. All right. So last question. Yes. If there's one thing that you really kind of maybe were struck by while doing this process of reading all of her work and um, writing this wonderful, beautiful, so readable, engaging biography, um, what is what was like the one thing that really struck you during that whole process? Thank you for this question, Liz, because it's so easy to answer her sense of humor. She was hilarious. I tried. So one of the things I tried to do in this book, because again, her papers are gone, but I have correspondence um, that I could draw from her voice to these two men, her literary agent and a lover. 
And I tried whenever I could to bring her voice and especially her humor into the book because there's, look, there's some dark stuff. There's some hard stuff in the book. But man, she was so smart and funny and she was so good at self-effacing humor. And she was just, I just, I think she would have been such an interesting conversationalist around anything serious because she had that like that Dorothy Parker kind of fast wit, um, very punchy, very New York, very urban, very sophisticated. You know, she was a reader. She was super smart. She was up on everything. Um, and she could just come in with like these lines, these one-liners, like I would have loved to have seen her write a comedy. God, why couldn't she have been able to write a comedy? She would have done a great job of like writing something like The Women. Whenever I don't know if you know that amazing film, The Women, all women, divorcees, Reno. I mean, it could be her. It's not. It's Claire Booth Loose. But it could be her in terms of like, that's the kind of thing I think she would have written had she had the opportunity. So yeah, I love her sense of humor. And um, and it, it also helped me get through what was at times, you know, a pretty sad book to write because I really came to... Um, empathize with her and to um, feel for her, especially in her darker moments and, um, you know, when she had her hardest times. And, and so it was always great that she could provide me with some comic relief that helped me get through the writing process. Um, women are so funny. I don't, yes. We don't get enough credit for how funny we are. We're hilarious. We're so <laughs> hilarious. Thank you for this great conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. So it was a pleasure to talk to you. This American Ex-Wife is a podcast created by me, Liz Lenz, and Zachary Oren-Smith. Look, legally, women are not allowed to podcast without the oversight of a mustachioed man. So I thank you so much to Zach for his help overseeing this project. Listen, if you liked what you heard, you can buy my book. Even if you didn't like what you heard, you can still buy my book, This American Ex-Wife which will be published on February 20th, 2024. Please pre-order the book through your local bookstore, bookshop.org, or wherever books are sold. And if you have to buy it from that evil man, that's fine. That's fine. You're just going to help him get on a rocket, go into outer space, and we'll all be so much better. Thank you so much. And may the dresses we burn light the way. One time, I was, I was dating this professor, and we were like going to go on a road trip, and I was like, we have to stop at this gas station outside Cedar Falls because it has this Arby's, and it's in the gas station. But the great thing about it is it has all this like the sauces all lined up, so you can just go pump, pump, pump. A pump, real pump. grizzly lineup, just like <laughs> right. the meanest lineup. Right, and like we had like, like it stopped to like switch cars and like hadn't eaten, and I'm like, oh my God, I know the best like Arby's inside a gas station not too far, let's go. And he was like, okay. We get there, and I'm like, oh my God. Like I got all my little sauces all lined up, blah, 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 blah. He'd never been to an Arby's before. Never once. Never once. Never known the joy of no. a spiral cut French fry. Uh, and dipped in every single one of the sauces. Uh, and so like, beef. I was just like, I was like, oh my God, let's get, I'm, I was so excited. I was just like, and then you can do this with all the sauce and you mix them all together and blah, blah, blah. And I was like in the zone, in the Arby's zone. 
and the horsey it, sauce. And they, call, they do call it the RV zone. <laughs> they do. They call it, they call it the horsey sauce zone. Actually, I think is the technical term that they use. So, uh, and I and I'm doing it, and then at some point I finally look up at him, and he's like disgusted. He's like, I can't eat this because you're sloppy with horsey sauce. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was like, this is disgusting, and I can't eat this. You can't have too many sauces. No, that is not true. It becomes soup after a while. No, well, they were all in their little thing, but then you mix some, and then you get a couple extras for the mixing. Did you ever use the, th- is it the three spice? Oh, it's been so long. Haven't been. Poser. In a couple fucking, years. Fucking poser. Fucking poser, Arby's eater. I'm paying for this by the hour. I don't, I don't have to put up with this kind of abuse. 